Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, last week's deadly mass shooting in Half Moon Bay put a spotlight on the substandard living and working conditions faced by many farm workers, and especially there. So we've invited labor leader Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher with the California Labor Federation to join us. CalFed represents more than 2 million workers in 1,200 unions across the state. Before joining them, Gonzalez Fletcher was in the state assembly, so there's lots to talk about with her. Um, landscape of the labor policy and politics at the Capitol. She always has All something to say. All kinds of things. Yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. But first, Marisa, a few things in the news this week. Uh, Adam Schiff's campaign for the U.S. Senate got a big boost sort of today from uh, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She said she really endorses Dianne Feinstein if she runs, but in the off chance she doesn't, she's with Adam Schiff. And, uh, you know, uh, we everyone expects Dianne Feinstein to announce her retirement. Uh, she says she'll announce her plans in the spring. But, you know, it's, it, it certainly helps Schiff in some ways, uh, but it's certainly not going to clear the field. No. And in a way, it almost feels like it, it, what it does is hurts a potential Barbara Lee candidacy or a Katie Porter more. I mean, again, like endorsements take them with a grain of salt. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi's very high profile and very popular within the Democratic base. Uh, is her endorsement going to flip, you know, the race? Probably not. But the fact that it's so early, I mean, the fact that we're just seeing a Nancy Pelosi who's willing to do these things, like you can tell she's acting differently now that she's not the leader of the Democratic caucus. Um, and it is a little interesting. I mean, you know, I know sh- I don't think she and Barbara Lee are like best friends. But they've worked together for a long time. She's from the Bay Area. I mean, obviously, she and Schiff also have a very, very strong relationship in Congress. Uh, You know, he managed the first impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, was on the October or the uh, January 6th committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. Um, So, you know, I think he's already a prolific fundraiser. But having somebody like Nancy Pelosi, especially maybe in a field where you're the only guy. And uh, you're trying to differentiate yourself. Yeah, for sure. But. 
Again, I mean, we keep saying it's so early. I mean, I guess it's not so early because as, as of now, the primary is next March. March yeah. So yeah. Th- this is all happening whether we like it or not. Yeah. And just last word, I, th- I do think that, uh, you know, it may freeze out some other people who are thinking about it. Maybe, uh, you know, because somebody like Ro Khanna, but uh, we will wait and see. He's, uh, you know, got some other potential plans on his calendar. So uh, one other thing this week, uh, Gavin Newsom, we talked about the shootings in Half Moon Bay and also down in Monterey Park. And Wednesday, you were up in Sacramento, Marisa. The governor had a press conference with some lawmakers talking about some additional steps they want to take. Uh, and we can talk about that. But there was also a moment where he got really hot under the collar about yeah. some comments the DA in Fresno County had made. That is right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think the gun announcement w- was widely expected. This is a response to a Supreme Court ruling that really hollowed out a lot of blue states, concealed carry weapons, uh, permitting processes. Um, but the, yes, that that I, I reported on the guns. That was national news. But the comments that Newsom made, essentially, he was asked by a Fresno reporter, what's your response? There was a police officer that was shot and killed by somebody who had spent time in prison, uh, had a long record. And um, Smith, Smith Camp, the DA down in Fresno, basically said that Newsom had, quote, blood on his hands. Um, and he really fired back. I mean, I got to say, Scott, I've, I've been at a couple events with the governor lately. The gloves are off. Like, New, Newsom 2.0 is coming. Yeah. And, uh, well, he pushed back. He said she should look in the mirror. You know, yeah. why didn't she prosecute him, you know, in, to the full extent of the law? And, you know, her words were pretty tough. You know, you've she got called blood. him a jackass the next or yeah, later than the day. On a podcast. Day. Yeah. So, you know, Newsom is not uh, does not shrink from high profile fights with folks. Um, but usually they're in Florida and Texas. Uh, this one is in the Central Valley. Yeah. And I mean, this one's interesting, too, because I don't know. I was I was reading through the transcript of her appearance. It was actually on an AM station, a, a pretty conservative station uh, in the Valley where she talked about this. And my response was like, wow, what is she running for? Because she wasn't just going after Newsom and Democrats for this. Um, but I also think that this speaks to this like simmering decade long debate we're having in California around criminal justice reform. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things she was attacking him for were actually Jerry Brown's proposals and policies that in one case, Prop 57, uh, which is at play here, was passed by voters. But at the heart of this, I think, is this question, which is like, Prosecutors and a lot of law enforcement are mad that they feel like some of the tools have been taken away from them with criminal justice reforms that are indeed aimed at increasing rehabilitation and increasing uh, or decreasing the amount of time people spend behind bars. And I do think it's interesting that you're hearing someone like Newsom push back with what he said, which was she could have charged him with more crimes. She chose to drop some of these more extreme, you know, gun and violent charges, and he wouldn't have qualified for these reforms if she had. And so it's pretty nuanced and I don't think everybody's going to be in the weeds on prison credits and all that stuff. But I think it's it's definitely a new approach from uh, someone like Newsom and people on the left. I think they feel more emboldened after the kind of, um, sw- you know, swings of the last year among crime debates to be yeah. a little bit more out there. Yeah. And he's been very uh, out front saying like the murder capital of California is Kern County, which Repeated is Kevin McCarthy's again, yeah. uh, district. Uh, so, yeah, he's uh, he's not going to just hang back and take that. He's going to fight back. And uh, this is probably a conversation that is going to uh, continue. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher. She's executive secretary treasurer of the California Labor Federation. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're delighted to welcome back, we think it's the third appearance on the breakdown, former Democratic State Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher. She left the legislature last year to become Executive Secretary-Treasurer of the California Labor Federation, which, by the way, represents more than two million workers in the state. Lorena, welcome back. Can we call you LGF? Does anybody call you that? (laughs) You can. In fact, that's what <laughs> it doesn't quite roll off the tongue <laughs> like AOC, but but that's what our staff yeah. calls it. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, they, it, in emails at least, I see it when they're <laughs> referencing me. It's always LGF. I'm like, who's that? Who's oh, that? Yeah, that's me. So um, we do want to ask you about these shootings, uh, Half Moon Bay, Monterey Park, uh, those communities still very much reeling from what went on there, the shootings. Uh, And we want to ask you about, in particular, the one in Half Moon Bay, because it did involve farm workers. Uh, Those were the victims of those shootings. And and that is an issue you worked on quite a bit in the legislature. What are your thoughts? Well, I believe even the perpetrator was a farm worker um, there. I I think it shined a light... um, on some of the situations that these farm workers are living and working in. And I think that that's really important. Although we continue to try to bang the drum and we always have about the working conditions, the livelihoods of our farm workers, and we continue to push bills to improve that. You know, we have a lot of laws that are set to protect them. And yet without enforcement, those laws really are meaningless. One of the reasons we pushed um, the right to organize in a in an easier fashion last year for farm workers is we know where there's a union, you have a built in enforcement mechanism. And so um, this was a this was not surprising to us. Um, unfortunately, and it, it just goes to to show just how bad the working conditions are for our farm workers. And is that is it typical not only obviously for people to be living in poverty and in deplorable conditions, as the governor called them, and we'll get to that reaction in a minute, but also that they were living on these farms, which were not permitted to be housing people. Like, is that something you see quite a bit throughout the state? It, it is. You know, we've done a lot with farm worker housing. We provide a lot of farm worker housing um, and it still is just a drop in the bucket. Um, historically, farm workers, when they came to this country, um, you know, they're migrant workers. They often put up tents. They often um, lived in what many people would consider substandard conditions and, and moved along as, as they picked throughout the year. Uh, this has seemed to take hold in the same way we have a housing crisis for just about every um, middle-income workforce and below, farm workers are no different. We have a housing crisis there. Well, when the governor visited Half Moon Bay, uh, he was clearly very upset, understandably. He had been meeting with farm workers and farm worker families. Um, and I'm wondering if you were surprised that he seemed surprised at the, at the conditions these folks were living in. You know, I was. I, I feel like we we banged the drum a lot on this issue. We've said it time and time again, but 
you know, I'm glad he got out there and sought for himself because uh, a planned visit to a farm, um, I don't think with a farm owner, and we've seen some of that by him throughout the past through the Central Valley, you're not going to witness this type of um, deplorable conditions. But when you're out there because of the workers and because of something that happened to the workers, you may be able to see a little different side of it. So I'm glad that he he took that step and finally saw what so many of us have been advocating um, against and advocating for better conditions. Yeah, I mean, before we turn to some other labor issues, I'm just curious, like, is this going, do you see this as a rallying cry? I know that the state did, you know, say they were going to investigate these particular farms for what was happening in the, in the county. But a lot of the bills you've worked on have passed, some have died. Like, what's next? What, especially given that horrific situation, needs to, you know, what, what's going to be on your list this year as you look legislatively, policy-wise? Well, we're, we're doing additional legislation, but at the end of the day, um, we're really focusing on enforcement. You know, I, I've been, I think, with just about every enforcement agency throughout the state in the last few weeks, um, you know, from city attorneys and DAs to SCIF, our workers' comp frauds, to the insurance commissioner, um, the labor commissioner, everybody kind of has a piece of this. And we keep saying, look, we've passed incredible laws in California. We really do. On the books we should be able to avoid nine tenths of these problems. However, we have to have ways to go in and, and stop it. And, you know, it's not, um, it, at the same time as we're pushing for more state enforcement, public enforcement, you know, we have people pushing against private enforcement through our courts. So we have to look at how do we um, get more money into the budget for enforcement of not just farm worker legislation, but all legislation that sought to protect workers from abuses. Well, and um, K- excuse me, KQED has done some I'm reporting sorry. on wage theft, uh, not mm-hmm. just from farm workers, but, uh, you know, other industries, fast food workers as well. And, you know, it is on the state, as you say, to to enforce those things. Do you have a sense that it's just not a priority? Or is it becoming one? Because I think on a lot of areas, like talking to Newsom about housing and homelessness money, like that seems to be a a focus, at least in what they're saying in this administration. Like maybe there's a new day dawning? With with less money. A new day with less money. There was a little bit of money in for um, investigators in our um, labor commissioner's office. We think it needs to be much more um, fully funded. There's so many vacancies in labor commissioner's office. It's embarrassing. Um, We need to find more creative ways to get people to to stop these types of abuses. So, yeah, I think uh, we are going to see additional enforcement. I think we're going to continue to push on that. One of the big problems with um, farm workers in so many of our lowest wage workers, and I think there's a report coming out, in fact, on Friday from UC Merced about this, um, is farm workers are afraid to self-report some of these conditions, right? They, they often have um, uh, status undocumented or here on visas that put them in a vulnerable position, or even if they're here and they have a green card, they, they could still be in a vulnerable position because of their job, um, the, the ability to have whatever job they have, and the, the potential of being deported. Um, you know, this is a longstanding tradition. We're talking generations of of uh, employers who have deported workers who in any way complained about their working conditions. And so, you know, it's gonna take a lot. We, we saw a little bit of this, I'm really excited. The federal government gave us a, a tool that we hope to use, and that was um, the Department of Homeland Security just announced that when a worker, in fact, makes a claim about their workplace, that they will get two years of deferred action. So if they're here 
and they're undocumented, it, they will be protected from deportation for two years. So that that's a positive step in, in, in the right direction. But we got to continue to work on it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are talking with Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher. She heads up the powerful California Labor Federation. And we want to talk a little bit about that job and some of the broader labor politics. So people often think of the labor movement as monolithic. But as we know from covering government and all these debates, there's often a lot of fights within labor. So can you just explain, like, what is the Cal Labor Fed? Who's not in it? Maybe easier to say than who is in it. Well, um, I'd say a vast majority of unions are in the California Labor Federation. It is technically the state AFL-CIO. Um, the national AFL-CIO has some unions who are not in it that are in, in California. Mm. That's like SEIU and Teamsters. Historically, um, we've kept most unions um, unified. There are a couple you might have seen last year on some of the housing wars. The carpenters are not in the AFL-CIO. They're not in our state building trade. So they're kind of on the outside, do their own thing. Um, we, we see that time and time again. Uh, some of technically uh, the California Teachers Association itself is not in, but some of their local, their biggest local chapters like UTLA and the San Francisco teachers are in, as well as a lot of their locals at the local level. So, you know, um, the Carpenters, I guess, are the big one uh, that, that most people see. Some of our independent unions aren't, um, but Somewhere. And we, of course, brought back the United Farm Workers is one of the first things I did when I uh, took over. Well, you know, and because there are so many people you, in it, you represent a wide range of workers, service workers, construction, building trades, public employees. Um, but, you know, and you just kind of maybe alluded to it, but what are some of the fault lines, even within the unions, among the unions that are in CalFed? Where are the disagreements? I like to say that, you know, there, there's debate and discussion and not disagreements, but um, it, it just really depends. There are always going to be um, various polls on different unions, priorities. We work really hard. And one of our biggest jobs, of course, at CalFed is to keep people together, right? To keep the private sector unions and the public sector unions from fighting over just about anything. And and I feel like we've done a really good job. I mean, we, we have general principles, you know, we, we believe in the public sector work. However, if things are outsourced, we believe that, that sh those workers should be protected and those should be good union jobs. And ensuring that, that both sides, you know, follow along with that being the priority. We know public sector jobs are, are better jobs um, quite often. Uh, they have more protections. Um, but when private sector, uh, you know, basically private sector jobs come in to do what was traditionally public sector, we want to make sure that those protections continue to um, survive the change. You know, one of the issues that has been discussed in Sacramento forever, certainly when you were up there, is CEQA, the California Environmental mm -hmm. Quality Act. A lot of people feel it's been misused to stop projects. Uh, the building trades really don't like it much. Environmentalists do. Uh, you know, s there's some talk that maybe the governor is going to try to reform CEQA again. What are you hearing from your members about that? Well, first of all, I'd be careful. I think there are building trades who actually like CEQA, who have relied on CEQA to ensure that there's um, really responsible development. Uh, some of our, especially our electricians who are in renewable energies like CEQA. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that that building trades don't like it. I think, I think it's more the, but some people see it, the abuses that they don't like, right? This idea yeah. that it's used not to protect the environment, but to just stop building. 
Sure. And that absolutely, I think um, we all kind of see that as a potential. Um, but CEQA is necessary and CEQA has provided us with a lot of good uh, protections and, and have, you know, in a state that really cares about the environment, I think that's important. I think that CEQA could use some reforms, but I think that one of the things we really care about, which isn't in CEQA, is job quality. And so often um, CEQA is the only tool out there to talk about other things. So if you're talking about um, housing or affordability, you know, CEQA is this master tool that is being used by people, but often because we don't have other tools, right? right? So I, I think one of the things we'd like to see is economic impact, um, job quality to be more uh, of an accessible tool to stop projects um, from going forward. Interesting. I want to ask you about, you know, you mentioned unionization in private sector. Um, we've seen nationally pushes at Amazon, Pete, Starbucks. Um, and it really struck me, you know, listening to some of the Amazon organizers that they chose not to join the sort of big established union, that they created their own sort of grassworks organizing campaign. And they spent months and like 24 hours a day really like camping out, you know, working with folks, building that trust. And I just wonder, like, what that says to you. Like, do you think some of these big unions aren't close enough to the ground? Are there places where the movement needs to look, you know, kind of in the mirror and say, are we serving workers as much as we're serving the people in power in these labor movements? Absolutely. You know, and I, don't, I wouldn't say it's just big unions and small unions alike. Uh, we've been kind of dragged into this. Everything can be done through politics. And in reality, um, if you're not on the ground, and you're not organizing workers, you're not talking to workers, then it's never going to happen. So, you know, we really are pushing from the Cal Fed. One of the first things um, we, we, in fact, released was unionized California. It's an effort to meet workers where they're at. So to not just look at um, large strategic organizing, if you will, that can be done through legislation or um, through the public sector, but actually going and um, ensuring that we're talking one-on-one -on -one with workers. I mean, the pandemic kind of hurt that, but uh, we're starting a program where we're training organizers up and down the state. We're going to start an apprenticeship for organizers as well for actual long-term organizers, but we're trying to get back to the basics where people actually talk one-on-one -on -one, um, with workers to bring them into the movement and explain what the union's all about. That's all we have because these big corporations basically, I mean, ignore the law. You know, they, they can do anything. They'll ha always have more money. They'll always be able to, um, to ignore the law and just fight it out in courts and wait it out in courts. What we've got to do is have the power of people. That's what we do best. Well, and in that regard, uh, you know, the governor signed AB 257, which would have given fast food workers an opportunity to get big raises. Uh, and it's on hold now because a group <laughs> of restaurants, they call themselves the Save Local Restaurants, but it's really made <laughs> up of big companies like Chipotle and In-N-Out, McDonald's. They got enough signatures to put it uh, on the ballot as a referendum in November of 2024. And we're seeing more and more of this. They failed last time around with uh, the, 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 the referendum on the, the ban on flavored tobacco. But what do, you, what do you see is at stake on the referendum in particular on this fast food bill or law, I should say? Well, you know, it, it's incredible because we have proof, of course, that signature gathers wide to get signatures. That none of this is even, this is all theater at this point. What do you right? talk about that? People, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that. So basically, um, you know, the fast food companies paid signature gathers upwards of $10 per signature. So there was a motivation for these signature gathers to say absolutely anything to get somebody to sign. So we have video of signature gathers saying, 
you sign here to increase the wages, the minimum wage of fast food workers. Mm-hmm. They actually went into com- into communities that would support that and lied. I mean, that's as directly that that's as much as you can lie about an initiative. Um, and yet there's no recourse in California law. There's really no recourse. And that's problematic. What was once it's so interesting to me because the referendum, of course, the initiative, the recall was once put out as this progressive tool by Hiram Johnson. Right. And he put it out there because the legislature was bought by the railroad companies. I mean, basically, that was his reasoning. And yet here we are finally have a um, legislature that is in tune and responsive to a populist and a populist idea. And yet the corporations are misusing these initiative and referendums, spending God awful amounts of money in order to halt laws. And even if like in the flavor of tobacco situation, they know they can't win it. It puts the, um, delays it. you can still make money. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth the investment just to put it off for a couple of years. Exactly. A cost benefit analysis. I mean, it's incredible to me that we have this system now that was once um, supposed to be guarding against corporate abuses being used by corporate abuses. But on that, I mean, cost benefit analysis and just like triage, we're already seeing the 2024 ballot shape up besides presidential and Senate races with, you know, this fast food referendum, potentially restrictions on, well, restrictions on new taxes, uh, tax increases that Howard Jarvis put out, uh, a minimum wage increase. Like, how do you guys think about how to kind of balance offense and defense and like where to spend your political and actual money capital in a big election year like that? In PAGA reform, that already made the ballot as well. You know, and that's PAGA, of course, is a labor law um, enforcement tool in the private sector. So, yeah, there's a lot that's already going to be on the ballot. And as we move closer, I I think there will be efforts to make deals to pull some of the stuff off the ballot. You know, we're open always to talking, but our, our basics won't won't change. You know, we we have a set of values and we're going to fight for those values. Um, Luckily, the one thing we are really good at is is getting out and talking to our members during elections. And so um, for us, in some ways, yes, it'd be easier if there was one ballot. But I think what you're going to find is a unified labor um, movement on the initiative so that we can say vote yes, yes, no, no, yes, no. Um, But it'll allow us to um, pool our resources together to fight them off. Well, you're no longer in the legislature, but you are in Sacramento, and I'm sure you're in the building uh, quite often. And we want to ask you about the speakership situation. Uh, Anthony Rendon is supposed to hand over the gavel, will hand over the gavel uh, later this year, uh, supposedly to Robert Rivas from Salinas, although She's smiling already. there may be some competition from others uh, who think, well, maybe Rivas does not have it all locked up. What are your thoughts about, you know, what kind of speaker Rendon has been? I mean, some have criticized him for being too hands off, giving too much power to, to committee chairs like you. <laughs> uh, what are your what, what's your takeaway on all of that? Um, well, first of all, I just want to be really clear because I don't want to end up with an FPPC violation. I am not in the building. Um, I, I do not talk or lobby legislation, nor will I until um, my ban is up at the end mm. of the year. So, uh, I, I you know, when I talk to legislators, in fact, it's usually about personal, like, how's your kids and wife or, uh, or about campaigns and politics, which we're allowed to talk about. So um, I don't have firsthand knowledge of, I guess, the ins and outs of the speaker vote. Um, But I can say that it's clear um, that there are a lot of hurt feelings. And I think that's what we keep hearing that there, there hasn't been, um, I think, uh, 
a reckoning of how bad it got. Um, I often say I, I'm glad to leave the legislature. I found it to be a toxic work environment. Um, I'm much happy, happier, healthier being outside. Um, it, it, it's a uh, unique situation. It's a little like being in middle school with like a lot more money and a lot more power, right? And so um, all the things I hated about middle school and like who are you sitting with at lunch and who are you friends with today? And that person's doing this, that, you know, there's a lot of that. It, it was quite shocking to be honest. Um, but as far as, you know, Speaker Rendon, he did a fantastic job. I don't think anyone who especially is a progressive Californian can look at what happened over his speakership over the last five, six years, all the big legislation that he was able to really, um, push through the legislature. You know, if people are upset that he did it by utilizing um, people close to him and chairs that were close to him and um, his lieutenants, then I, I guess that's kind of silly. The The end, end game was he got a lot of stuff done. And I think that we can all be proud of that. And he would talk to us. Revis has canceled on us like three Twice, times on this yes. show. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Rob Revis is also, I think, just a very um, good guy. Maybe he doesn't like media as much. But, um, you know, it, at the end of the day, I think one of the most striking things about this fight and of course, from the outside, but I would say this if I were on the inside, is you have two people who I cannot imagine having a disagreement on policy. I know. I, there's no daylight. There's none. It's all about personality. There's not. And there, even like in stature, kind of in personality, in personal personality, I mean, they're yeah. very similar. They're yeah. nice guys. Um, you know, they, they both had great stories about growing up. They care deeply about individuals and people. They're pro-environment. They're pro-labor. I'm not really sure um, that the fight really isn't about other people's power in the building. And I think that that's probably what it comes down to. It usually right. is, right? Yeah, often <laughs> is. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher, LGF, if you like. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank that, you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. We should say we have had Lorena on several times before. Listen back to our 2019 interview. She's got an incredible life story as well. For today, our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. I'm Scott Schaefer. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to the Political Breakdown newsletter at kqed.org slash newsletters. On behalf of Marisa and myself, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more 
all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 